Welcome to the Terry Podcast, Tales from Near and Far. Read to you by Pratham Data. A Child's History of England by Charles Dickens. Chapter 18. England under Edward III. Roger Mortimer, the Queen's lover, who escaped to France in the last chapter, was far from profiting by the examples he had had of the fate of favourites. Having, through the Queen's influence, come into possession of the estates of the two dispensers, he became extremely proud and ambitious and sought to be the real ruler of England. The young king who was crowned at fourteen years of age with all the usual solemnities, resolved not to bear this, and soon pursued Mortimer to his ruin. The people themselves were not fond of Mortimer, first, because he was a royal favourite, secondly, because he was supposed to have helped to make a peace with Scotland, which now took place, and in virtue of which the young king's sister Joan, only seven years old, was promised in marriage to David, the son and heir of Robert Bruce, who was only five years old. The nobles hated Mortimer because of his pride, riches and power. They went so far as to take up arms against him, but were obliged to submit. The Earl of Kent, one of those who did so, but who afterwards went over to Mortimer and the Queen, was made an example of in the following cruel manner. He seems to have been anything but a wise old Earl, and he was persuaded by the agents of the favourite and the Queen that poor King Edward II was not really dead and thus was betrayed into writing letters favouring his rightful claim to the throne. This was made out to be... They took the poor old lord outside the town of Winchester, and there kept him waiting some three or four hours until they could find somebody to cut off his head. At last, a convict said he would do it, if the government would pardon him in return. And they gave him the pardon, and at one blow he put the Earl of Ken's last suspense. While the Queen was in France, she had found a lovely and good young lady named Philippa, who she thought would make an excellent wife for her son. The young king married this lady soon after he came to the throne and her first child, Edward, Prince of Wales, afterwards became celebrated, as we shall presently see. The young king, thinking the time ripe for the downfall of Mortimer, took counsel with Lord Montacute how he should proceed. A parliament was going to be held at Nottingham, and that lord recommended that the favourite should be seized by night in Nottingham Castle, where he was sure to be. Now, this, like many other things, then done, because 
to guard against treachery, the great gates of the castle were locked every night, and the great keys were carried upstairs to the queen, who laid them under her own pillow. But the castle had a governor, and the governor being Lord Montacute's friend, confided to him how he knew of a secret passage underground, hidden from observation by with which it was overgrown, and how, through that passage, the conspirators might enter in the dead of night, go straight to Mortimer's room. Accordingly, upon a certain dark night, at midnight, they made their way through this dismal place, startling the rats and frightening the owls and bats, and came safely to the bottom of the main tower of the castle and took them up a profoundly dark staircase in a deep silence. They soon heard the voice of Mortimer in council with some friends, and bursting into the room with sudden noise, took him prisoner. The queen cried out from her bedchamber, Oh, my sweet son, my dear son, spare my gentle Mortimer. They carried him off, however, and accusing made differences between the young king and his mother, and of having brought about the death of the Earl of Kent, and even of the late king. For, as you know by this time, when they wanted to get rid of a man in those old days, they were not particular of what they accused him. Mortimer was found guilty of all this, and was sentenced to be hanged at Tyburn, his mother up in genteel confinement, where she passed the rest of her life, and now he became king in earnest. The first effort he made was to conquer Scotland. The English lords who had lands in Scotland, finding that their rights were not respected under the late peace, made war on their own account, choosing for their general, Edward, the son of John, that in months he won the whole Scottish kingdom. He was joined by the king and parliament, and he and the king in person besieged the Scottish forces in Berwick. The whole Scottish army, coming to assistance of their countrymen, such a furious battle ensued that 30,000 men are said to have been killed in it. Balliol was then crowned King of Scotland, doing homage to the King of England, but little came of his successes after that. In no long time, and David Bruce came back within ten years and took his kingdom. Now France was a far richer country than Scotland and the king had a much greater mind to conquer it. So he let Scotland alone and pretended that he had a claim to the French throne in right of his mother. He had, in reality, no claim at all. But that mattered little in those times. He brought over to his cause many little princes and sovereigns, and even courted the alliance of the people of Flanders, a busy working community who had very small respect for kings and whose head man was a brewer. With such forces as he raised, 
by these means, Edward invaded France. But he did little by that except run into debt in carrying on the war to the extent of £300,000. The next year he did better, gaining a great sea fight in the harbour of Sluys. This success, however, was very short-lived, for the Flemings took fright at the siege of St. Omer and ran away, leaving their weapons and baggage behind them. Philip, the French king, coming up with his army, and Edward being very anxious to decide the war, proposed to settle the difference by single combat with him, or by a fight of 100 knights on each side. The French king said he thanked him, but being very well as... He was, he would rather not. So, after some skirmishing and talking, a short peace was made. It was soon broken by King Edward's favouring the cause of Jordan, Earl of Munsford, a French nobleman who asserted a claim of his own against the French king and offered to do homage to England for the crown of France, if he could obtain it through England's help. This French lord himself was soon defeated by the French king's son and shut up in a tower in Paris. But his wife, a courageous and beautiful woman, who is said to have had the courage of a man and the heart of a lion, assembled the people of Brittany, where she then was, and, showing them her infant son, made many pathetic entreaties to them not to desert her and their young lords. They took fire at this appeal and rallied round her in the strong castle of Hennebon. Here she was not only besieged without the French under Charles de Blois, but was endangered within by a dreary old bishop who was always representing to the people what horrors they must undergo if they were faithful, first from famine and afterwards from fire and sword. But this noble lady, whose heart never failed her, encouraged her soldiers by her own example, went from post to post like a great general, even mounted on horseback, fully armed, and, issuing from the castle a bypath, fell upon the French camp, set fire to the tents, and threw their whole force into disorder. This time, she got safely back to Hennebon again, and was received with loud shouts of joy by the defenders of the castle, who had given her up for lost. As they were now very short of provisions, however, and as they could not time of enthusiasm, and as the old bishop was always saying, I told thee what it would come to, they began to lose heart, and to talk of yielding the castle up. The brave countess retiring to an upper room, and looking with great grief out to sea, where she expected relief from England, saw at this very time the English ships in the distance and was relieved and rescued. Sir Walter Manning, the English commander, so admired her courage that, 
being come into castle with the English knights, and having made a feast there, he assaulted the French by way of dessert and beat them off triumphantly. Then he and the knights back to the castle with great joy, and the countess who had once watched them from a high tower thanked them with all her heart and kissed them every one. The noble lady distinguished herself afterwards in a sea fight with the French of Guernsey when she was on her way to England to ask for more troops. Her great spirit roused another lady, the wife of another French lord, whom the French king had very barbarously murdered, to distinguish herself scarcely less. The time was fast coming, however, when Edward, Prince of Wales, was to be the great star of this French and English war. It was in the month of July, in the year 1346, when the king embarked at Southampton for France, with an army of about 30,000 men in all, attended by the Prince of Wales and by several of the chief nobles. He landed at La Hogue in Normandy, and, burning and destroying as he went, according to custom, advanced up the left bank of the River Seine, and fired the small towns even close to Paris. But, being watched from the right bank of the river by the French king and all his army, it came to this at last, that Edward found himself on Saturday the 26th of August, 1346, on a rising ground behind the little village of Cressy, face to face with the French king's force. And, although the French king had an enormous army, in number more than eight times his, he there resolved to beat him or be beaten. Next week, we'll carry on with the Battle of Cressy, one of the famous English versus French battles. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed it, Please comment and please like it and subscribe. Please do let me know if there are certain tales from whichever part of the world you might be in that you would like me to read. Thank you.